Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to Ladies Who London podcast. I'm Emily Dell. And I'm Alex Lacey and we are qualified London Blue Badge tourist guides. Each week we bring to you some of the best bits of London. We talk about our favourite people, places and events with a bit of information, a lot of laughs and a whole lot of fun. We can be found on Instagram at Ladies Who London podcast and on our websites guideemily.com and alexlacy.com for information about our upcoming walking tours and virtual tours as well as what the Blue Badge Guiding Qualification is all about. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are good. you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I've um, I've been doing loads of baking this week, which I love. Um, just I kind of got to the point of going, just want to bake. <laughs> so I've been making making tons of stuff for all my neighbours. They're getting uh, <laughs> getting loads and loads of uh, of delicious stuff. But yeah, apart from that, um, not really much. I guess quite a quiet week this week. How about you? Yeah, pretty quiet. Um, although we did go to a garden centre on Sunday. Um, I know it was like, the oh, dream. God, what an absolute treat! So we got uh, a couple of plants. I think it took us about an hour to kind of decide on what what plants we should get to put on the balcony. But we got there in the end. Good. And uh, we've gone for some camellias. Amazing, fabulous. That's what we like. Yeah. So spring um, is sprung. The grass is riz. Spring is sprung. Exactly. So that was nice. You know, it's the little things that you start to appreciate. You know, like the idea of baking and things. It's, yeah. You know, but yeah. All <laughs> embracing good. the lockdown baking. It's all good. Yeah, embracing the lockdown. Yeah, because you've been doing banana bread, which a lot of people oh, have been, been doing getting banana bread and cookies and all sorts of stuff. I've just been loving it. Oh, hey, there we tasty. go. Tasty. So, welcome back, everybody. It's, this is kind of turning into just me and you catching up now, isn't it? And having a little <laughs> chat about stuff. I know. I'm okay with it. It'll all, you know, I'm sure that the format of this is going to change massively when lockdown finishes. Oh, um, God, yeah. But uh, for, the, for the time being, it's just quite nice to have a little catch up, isn't it? It is. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Ladies in London podcast. Uh, we're thrilled to be back with you again this week. And last week... Um, I really, really enjoyed last week's one on Virginia Woolf. It was fantastic. Mm. Um, what, uh, yeah, did you get some good feedback from people on that one? I did, yeah. A lot of people saying that they didn't know that much about her as an individual. Um, knew a couple of her books 
and someone said they knew a film that she'd been in but the intricacy of her mind i guess yeah um so yeah i'm glad you enjoyed it yeah i didn't know anything about her so it was really fascinating for me um and so we need to figure out uh the who won the podcast pedestal from last week oh right here we go then (laughs) are you not feeling it then (laughs) no i am not oh no. no i've looked i've looked at a couple of votes um and somebody did message in a vote for me, I believe. So make sure that you get that one down. Okay, I will. I will add one. But actually, no. I think it was a vote for me. It was. It was Rachel who. Oh damn it! You're right. It was for you. <laughs> for me. Sake. Oh dear. Oh. Okay. Right. Well, I'll. I'll just put you out of your misery. Yes. Um, let's gallop <laughs> over this as quickly as we possibly can. Ah. <laughs> uh, so the novel, which I think was a great choice, great shout. Do you know what 20... it was? What did you yeah go for it? Twenty vote twenty votes for the novel. Twenty votes for the novel. Yeah, and the library got fifty seven. <laughs> the library got fifty seven. Tw- sorry, how many votes did I get? Twenty. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I mean, I'm Orlando sorry, is just such a classic. It says so much about her personality. Says so much about the people in her life. It is known as the longest love letter ever written. <laughs> But to be fair, the way I described her sitting outside of the library was pretty good. So. <laughs> Are you taking that as a win? <laughs> Can I take that trophy, please? For my, uh, oh, my description, the visual aid that yes, I gave yes. you. Yes, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a joint win right there. I'm going to let, you, let <laughs> no, you... No, congratulations, Alex. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> so now the score is... Sorry, I'm not. I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing because you've lost. You're cackling. I'm not laughing because you've lost again. It's just your 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 face. You're completely so evil. Look at you. You're You're almost slapping your leg. (laughs) Oh dear. So currently, it's ten to me. I'm. I am. I am in double. You are in double figures. Yeah. Um. But it's twelve to you, so now it's ten. Now it's thirteen ten. Thirteen. Unlucky for some. Oh, what happened in thirteen ten? What happened in thirteen ten? Oh, goodness. Boom. Thirteen ten, just before lunch. Um, right. Well, let's get on with this week's um podcast because then you will feel a lot better about things. Yes, let's move on, on swiftly. Let's move on to that. So <laughs> this week, uh, the wheel landed in um Liverpool Street slash. Shoreditch, and again, there's, I mean, a, a ton of stuff that we could do in that area. But I've gone, um, I've gone in for something good and dark again, which will uh, yes. speak to your sensibilities, which you do like, um, yes. which is Bethlehem Hospital, otherwise known as Bedlam. Mm. And there's a couple of places we could have picked for um, Bethlehem Hospital, but uh, I, I sort of thought Liverpool Street is the perfect one because that's where it starts out. Mm-hmm. So, what? How much do you know about Bethlehem Hospital or Bedlam? I know more about the one that was over in Southwark and okay. about some of the the, the horrible uh, treatments that the patients went under. Um, so I know more about the, the latter years of Bedlam. So I'm quite excited to find out how it all started, really. Interesting. Right. Well, um, cast your minds back, if you will, mm. to uh, the 13th century. 1247 if you want to be specific about things and this is when 
Bethlehem Hospital is founded. And I don't want you to kind of think of hospital the way that we think about it today, to start with anyway. Think about it more as hospitality. So it's about um, putting people up and particularly it's about looking after people in need, the poor, uh, the hungry, those who've got nowhere else to go. And it starts out um, very simply on a slightly kind of, um, it's it's actually on a bit of land that has been donated. It's a charitable uh, thing by a guy called Simon Fitzmary. So... Simon Fitzmary donated a chunk of land and he had, um, he was quite big into um, well, the Bethlehem and the Virgin Mary. He'd been on crusades and all this sort of thing. So he was quite into all this stuff and he'd become quite a, um, a wealthy political figure. He was actually the Sheriff of London twice. Mm. So um, from fairly sort of humble beginnings, he kind of gets himself up into the upper echelons and he decides that with his newfound wealth, he's going to give a chunk of land to... Um, this particular um, place to, to create this hospital, uh, which was named after um, Bethlehem. Well, it was simple as that. So Bethlehem Hospital, um, and it was a priory to like so many hospitals. This is where you know we see a lot of hospitals and charitable institutions coming from priories and religious institutions. And so this one was the Priory of St Bethlehem, and it was this medieval hospital. So like I say, hospitality. It is putting up people, um, a refuge really for anybody who needs, uh, you know, a roof over their head and care and people would turn up there. And it was quite, it was quite small. It it covered just uh, about two acres. It was one story and it it was quite kind of compact. And you had a courtyard in the middle, which had a chapel in it. And then there were approximately, um, 12 to 15, what they call cells, uh, for patients, and there's a kitchen and staff accommodation and all this kind of thing. Now, mm, sounds quite nice. I mean, it does actually sound a little too bad. Now, at this point, I am just going to interject and and say, um, I'm going to kind of say a trigger warning here for, for, because we are going to be talking today about mental health. We are talking about um, people who, and I, I will be using kind of historical terms that we wouldn't use today, like mad. And all of these terms I'm sort of putting in, in quotation marks, um, mad or asylum or um, crazy and all these sort of words. That So I just want that to be um, a bit of a trigger warning for people that we are going to be discussing that. And I am going to be using words that at the time, you know, would have been used but but we don't so much today so um whenever i'm saying words like crazy or mad please imagine i'm doing them in in uh, quotation marks because ultimately that is how we're sort of referring to it today so um gradually this hospital becomes uh, they start to specialize in caring for people who aren't just poor but who can't uh, take care of themselves and this is where they are considered mad and in um by the early 1400s, patients that are referred to as lunatic are the sort of the majority of what the patients are in Bethlehem Hospital. And so essentially this becomes England's kind of first, what we're going to call mental institution. Um, and also it will eventually become the most famous, or I probably should say infamous actually. Mm. So over the years, this becomes less and less religious. And in the end, the hospital's sort of struggling to survive. And so the City of London takes it over. And one of the reasons for this, um, the fact that it's kind of got a future with the City of London, is the fact that it has this specialisation in madness and and mental illnesses. But they do also treat other people, um, people with learning disabilities, with dementia, and also a thing that's called falling sickness, which is basically epilepsy. 
So they start to um, look after people like that. And gradually, bit by bit, it becomes more and more well-known. And the name Bedlam, uh, or Bethlehem, which, you know, people sort of shove it into the word of Bedlam. Uh, it, the word Bedlam starts to become known. It's like a sort of a byword, really, for, um, for things that are, are, are crazy, that are mad, chaotic. And the most difficult patients are called Stark Bedlam Mad. So mm. there we go. And so it, it starts to become a kind of byword for not just insanity, but chaos generally. And we still have that word today. If, you know, if kind of running around and there's all sorts of stuff going on, I say, oh, it's Bedlam, absolute Bedlam. And that's where it comes from. Wow. So it's been, yeah, that's been going for quite some time. Yeah, so hundreds of the, years. Yeah, wow. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit later how that, that idea of it being kind of chaotic and busy and crazy and all, all that sort of stuff comes into um, common parlance because you would think that it's inside the hospital, people aren't going to be seeing that. But, oh, they do. So mm. we're just um, going to have a little look at the at, at what makes it such a, uh, an important spot. It, um, the whole thing is rebuilt in 1676. So the, the previous one, as I mentioned, is quite small. Um, you, there's only a few uh, patients that you can take. But it was rebuilt in just after the Great Fire of London and it shifts slightly over towards the Moorfields area. So it's not too far away, um, but no. this is a much, much bigger site. And it, it is created, and this is where it, it becomes a real part of British uh, sort of, well, particularly London, really, society and, and kind of consciousness because they don't just build a building that is functional and that is useful to keep patients in. They build what is essentially a huge, very opulent looking palace type building to the point where it is actually compared to the Palace of Versailles. This is what how amazing oh. it looks. Yeah. So it would have been incredible. So it's the kind of place that you you you, you wanted to get into. Yes, and I should I should point out this is only have... only from the outside so this is quite key mm. um, but yeah the sort of place that you know mm. you'd go along and you'd say oh my goodness and, and there are stories that people were sort of taken there and 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 said oh you know look at this amazing building what do you think it is and someone would go oh it's clearly where the lord mayor of the city of london lives and and they'd say no it's a it's an asylum and they you know be, there was um a guy who who actually said that the design of it makes you wonder whether the persons that ordered the building of it or those that inhabit it are the maddest so you know, oh, it's an incredible building. That. I know, it's great, isn't it? It's got an incredible building. It looks mm. amazing. And you turn up and you go, oh, this is a, an asylum for mad people. That, And everyone's like, why? Like, it, the two don't seem to go together. And at one point, actually, um, somebody does describe it as for many years being the only building that looked like a palace in London. And it was referred to as a palace for lunatics um, as well. That was sort mm. of the... the you know, the strap line. It was designed by a guy called Robert Hook, who, if anybody knows anything about St. Paul's Cathedral um, or post-Great Fire of London architecture, he was a colleague and assistant to Christopher Wren. So, you know, he's got he's got chops as well. And he properly went for it. Like, he decided, OK, we're just going to go all out on this building. Huge, long frontage to it with turrets and columns, Corinthian columns, these beautiful kind of ornate ones. Um, huge, huge manicured formal gardens and tree-lined sort of spaces to walk and this kind of thing. And it said that he was inspired by the Tuileries Palace uh, in Paris. So there's a lot of this kind of French 
uh, influence coming in and them going, oh, let's make this amazing building that's essentially going to be um, uh, a hospital for mental illness. And the entrance as well had these two human sculptures on it, one on either side. Um, and they were, you know, clearly very obviously suffering. One was called Mel- Melancholy and one was called Raving Madness. So as you're kind of going into this building, you know, even that above your head is doing that. So what about the area of Moorfields? Would the palace have stuck out like a sore thumb or was Moorfields quite an affluent area back then? No, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb. And, and one of the reasons actually that it was built is if you think about it, we're talking 1674, um... What's happened recently? Great Fire of London, 1666. So it has Mm. devastated the city of London. And one of the things that London, particularly the city, was like, it was these tiny little uh, alleyways and warrens of wooden timbered houses. And they were dark and they were, um, you know, uh, polluted and all this sort of thing. And so one of the things that that London wants to do is to compete with places like Paris and other cities that are rebuilding in, in grander styles. And so know that this building was properly, you know, stuck out like a sore thumb. And it was it was huge and it was very, like I say, pa- very palace-like and people were, um, you know, very impressed with it. And it was this, this kind of move towards trying to make London a grander city that was nicer for everybody um, and part of this thing about you know creating institutions that are useful to help people as well but there's another reason why Gosh, it's built. as a patient yeah i was gonna say as a patient going in thinking that oh wow this is actually going to be really lovely inside and then just suddenly the horror hits you of where you're going to be placed and living yeah and i should say that the uh it's beautiful on the outside but on the inside it's very, very different. Um, and there's there's another reason why it's built as well. There's, you know, it can only take a few people at um, the asylum. So there's loads of other private asylums that are opening up. It's particularly, and this, this kind of does continue, even when the new one is built, you see um, a sort of rapid expansion in London's population and the need for more and more spaces and in fact the new um bethlehem hospital only has space for 120 patients so still not a huge amount and this really long list for admissions so all these private um well again in quotation marks madhouses uh start appearing everywhere um and you know some of them are really quite abject and and they're basically kind of prisons for want of a better word unregulated um and this essentially when families have a rather inconvenient member of the family who's got some issues they can just lock them up there and not worry about it um so by building this new uh incredible building this gives them a usp and so they can beat the competition um basically so it's you know it's all about financial gain as well well, I was going to say, do I mean, would the patients have to pay or would their families have to pay for them to actually be placed inside the hospital? That's a very good question. Uh, it, no, it, it's um, it's always been a charitable institution. Um, so they have raised money through other sources. So, no, as far as okay. I'm aware, it didn't cost to go there. The private ones, yeah, they, they may well have done. Um, but this one is a charitable institution. So you have this incredible building, which looks amazing, really beautiful. But 
um, you get problems with it from the very, very start. And the, the this huge, ornate facade that's on the front is so heavy that the back of it just cracks. You get rainwater running down the walls. Mm. There's no foundations. And essentially, from the, ver- from the word go, from the minute it's built, the whole thing is this collapsing, breaking mess from the very start. And what you're doing is you're sort of slapping a sticking plaster over um, what the locals really saw as a kind of a, quite a grubby problem. Um, but... Yeah, essentially, it's it's all it's all fur coat, no knickers. I think we've said before. Yes, and it was just reminding me of you know, like um, uh, Wide's Globe in Leicester Square, where you yeah. think it's you know it's quite mesmerising, but look a little bit closer, and there's cracks and yeah. the paints all chipping off. Exactly, and it, yeah, it reminded me of that as well when I was um, kind of reading all this because it it does it does strike me as that thing of look at all this amazing and then actually just don't look behind the curtain because it's all a bit yeah yeah falling apart <laughs> and so this is what you get you get this this building that again is not really fit for purpose but it looks pretty and so therefore it's uh you know it's commanding quite a lot of attention and it becomes a bit of a local well not a local but a, a london landmark visitors would come mm. and see it as a day of touristing um and this is where we we linking slightly back towards the Joseph Merrick episode where we're talking about uh, freak shows and sideshows and it's a very similar thing people come and visit the um hospital and we don't quite know the numbers are debated uh, about how many people went every year um, there are some sources that say it was tens and tens of thousands of people and that it was the second only to St Paul's Cathedral in popularity but it's a little bit difficult to kind of nail that down and, and whether that's accurate or not second to St Paul's yeah I, mean, but I, 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 I wouldn't reading. necessarily take that as as gospel take that as gospel uh-huh. you know but people would it would be part of their day out you know yeah. they'd go to the tower of london they'd see st paul's and then they'd head over to the hospital yeah. to to essentially look at the patients as if yeah, yeah that they were animals and it's not even just looking at the patients as well so one of the things the hospital is encouraging this because they, they're benefiting um financially from it And it's Mm. said that they could raise up to about £450 a year, which is a lot of money for the hospital. Mm. Um, And there's all kinds of little backhanders as well. So staff can can get a little bit of extra money if they get bribes for private tours and access to cells and wards and things like that. So there's a little bit of backhanded stuff going on. So it it becomes very much a kind of, yeah, a a slightly corrupt system um, at the hospital. Mm. And and we'll come on to that a a little bit later. But again, it's part of this kind of this freak show thing and this this idea that, oh, let's go and have a look at, at these things that we don't, we just don't understand. And for as little as a penny, you could go into the wards there and you could stare at the inmates, but you can also shout stuff at them. You can taunt them. You can abuse them. You can try and sort of goad them. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can kind of try and goad them into uh, reacting or throwing stuff. And of course, you've got a whole variety of different people there. Um, you've got people who are suffering from depression, who are suffering from things like schizophrenia. You know, there's be all sorts of mental um, illnesses or mental issues going on there. So people are going to be reacting very, very differently. And, and so this, yeah, they, it's it's just, it's unthinkable really, but this is what it is. And this is where we get the term bedlam coming to mean complete chaos. And if you sort of mm. think about it, really, um, one of the things that they're, it's it, they're doing by doing by allowing people in is they're sort of trying to remind people as well that you know how to keep yourself you do the right things then you you know if you don't then you'll end up in here and there's this sort of 
line between madness and sanity and it's there's all these works of fiction i mean there's so many works of art that come out from uh, uh, about bedlam um well, there's I, william hogarth isn't there absolutely and he does go uh, hogarth does go and visit uh, bedlam hospital um and he would i mean he then goes and he uses bedlam in the rake's progress in particular mm. and he's i mean we know hogarth he, he loves to wax lyrical about the the things in society that you should and should not be doing and telling you oh don't do this and do that and blah blah, blah. and one of them is is this the rake's progress one of his most famous where um this chap comes over and due to kind of excesses he ends up falling in society and ends up in bedlam um mm. so he's using it to sort of say look all these excesses just be careful because you'll end up in in the in the nut house otherwise um which is pretty yeah pretty yeah awful. in that picture as well um by hogarth there's like a coin an image of a coin on the wall yeah with a uh, britannia yeah. So it's kind of like, yeah, the society, it's the society that people are living in that makes people go mad. Exactly. Not that they're born mad. Yeah, and that's another of his, the, the, the things that Bedlam kind of becomes a, a byword for British society. So that's why Hogarth is using that little, that coin, because um, it, it's it's sort of being said that it's, it's um I guess a marker, um, a staging post for what is happening in British society. So the whole of that picture is going, oh, look, look at this crazy thing that's all happening here. And this is, it's not just here. Look at this thing on the wall. It's the whole of Britain that's, that's going a bit mad. And, you know, we know Hogarth yeah. and his, his love of, um, yeah, moral virtue and all that kind of stuff. And there is one Gosh, guy, yeah. actually, we can turn to. And, you know, as well, if you think about it, there are so many... Uh, sort of works of fiction and plays and things. I mean, even Shakespeare, who would have been around in the time of Bedlam, but the the previous Bedlam, not this very big kind of luxurious one. Um, you know, he talks a lot about in his plays about. You know, you see so many of his characters turning mad. Some little thing will happen, and they'll they'll flip and they'll go mad, and and then you have the characters and their entire sort of raison d'être in these plays is about is about insanity, is about being mad about something. It, it's uh, yeah, it's so there's a lot of works of art, fiction, all this kind of thing that's that's coming out of this as well. And I want to just mention one chap. Um, it's a guy called Ned Ward who, who used to write a diary. And he visited Bedlam in 1699. So it'll be in this new building. And he writes about it. And he says that he was just kind of terrified by what he saw and he heard. And I'm just going to read this little quote to you. Said, we heard such a rattling of chains, drumming of doors, ranting, hollering, singing and rattling that I could think of nothing but a vision where the damned broke loose and put hell in an uproar. So that's quite a, Ooh, a big statement. That creates a bit of a vision, doesn't it? It does. And other parts of his diary, he's talk he talk does talk about um how he's seeing and I think he actually takes part in in sort of taunting these um patients through the bars and through little holes that are cut in the doors and things like that. And and some of them are being verbally insulted, some of them being stuff thrown at them or spitting at them um and they're trying to get them to react and all this kind of thing so it's it's god it's really it full so on like it's so much like a zoo isn't it you know like if you've oh, got yeah. a line or something and you're trying to get its attention and it's not okay but you think it is to kind of like you know make a noise and bang on the bang on the glass to try yeah. and make it react absolutely awful it's really full on and you know that it becomes this place where there's so many people visiting and it's this kind of just 
well, chaos of, of noise and, and smell and all this sort of stuff. You get people who are going there for business too. So you get prostitutes going, you get pickpockets, you even mm. get um, food vendors and people who are selling like souvenirs and trinkets and stuff like that as well. So it kind of, you know, where people are, that's where you'll get your, your tradies. You, you get your people who've got stuff to sell. That's where they'll go. Yeah, so they to... really did turn it into an attraction. I mean, yeah. if it was here today... Or in the same manner, you know, you'd think it would be on the, um, oh, what's that ticket you get that you can go to Westminster Abbey, the London yeah. Eye, yes. and also head to Bedlam. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. And what they find is that uh, particularly when it gets to um, sort of parts of the year like Christmas and Easter, what am I trying to say? Um, sort of festival days, really, um, you get vast numbers of people and you get actually overcrowding at these times so you know it's clearly a sort of thing of right christmas let's go and see uh the mad people at, at bedlam it's it, it doesn't bear thinking about today oh. really no it doesn't it's yeah. cool. and we get people such as samuel peeps the diarist and dr johnson and all sorts of people you know it's, it's really it is the the place that people go and Gosh, peeps honestly i'm surprised he had any paper left <laughs> The amount, of, the amount of places that you went to know, and wrote right? about. I know. But it's, 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 you know, I guess it's thanks to people like Peeps that we have really good eyewitness accounts of um, things like this. Absolutely. Go. And, of course, so this building, you can tell it's not, it's not very, it's not, not particularly habitable. So as it gets ever more kind of crumbly and stuff, they end up shoving the patients closer and closer together. Um, and so there's lots of violence and you've got patients who are chained to their beds and their walls and all this kind of thing as well. So it's it's pretty awful. And you start to get um, reformists coming in uh, who are arguing that the patients need calm and quiet and, and they don't need visitors there um, and all this kind of thing. And, and this does eventually start to happen. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit because I want to tell you what it was like inside uh, the hospital. So I'm sure you can imagine it's not great. It's not particularly fun. It's not comfortable. Um, and the regime there is, is basically it's kind of punishment. Um, they have this sort of idea that mad they, they they hold this belief that madness is a disease of the body not the brain so it means that you can kind of um use medicines and and methods to cure and sort of purge these what they call melancholic humors you know that that um health in 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 bygone years was just down to humors different humors and if they were out of balance they could you know cause all kinds of illnesses and this that and the other so um madness or, or mental illness was down to melancholic humors and so it thought that you could purge uh, that out of the body by having, uh, by sort of in inflicting really bouts of vomiting and diarrhea, bleeding, bloodletting essentially, blistering of skins. They would oh literally blister skins. Um, they would place the patients in things like cold baths as well. So there's there's a couple of really big um, treatments that I want to tell you about. There was one chap who used to be a sweeper at the hospital, so a cleaner basically, and he said that he used to be a patient there and that he was lucky because he was lashed to his senses. So mm. clearly, you know, the, the thinking was, whatever the illness is, with deprivation, with punishment, with pain, with chains, this kind of thing, it will eventually leave your body. So, You've yeah. You've got to get that trauma out. Exactly. In the most, God, yeah. horrible way. And there's mm. three big kind of therapies that they use. One was called rotational therapy. And this is by um, developed by the grandfather of Charles Darwin, Erasmus Darwin. Uh, 
Mm. Yes, I mean, I'm... Mm. Um, he devised this kind of rotational therapy where basically you'd be put in a in a chair um, and the chair is suspended from uh, like a hook or a beam in the ceiling with ropes attached to the legs. And the chair would then be turned sort of 20 to 40 times. I mean, it's the kind of thing you did when you were a kid on the swings. And, but, you know, tighten yes, it all the way up. 20 to 40 times, Ali. That's a lot. God. Yeah, I know. And then it would be spun lot. and then it would basically be released and it would spin back to its original position. Oh, yeah, I know it's mad, isn't it? And and I mean, it's fun when you're a kid, but after uh, you know uh, one or two of those, you want to vomit all over the place, and it's only a couple of rotations. Yeah, especially if you know you're already going through all sorts of different different things mentally and physically as yeah. it was, and then exactly. to suddenly be spanned like that. Oh no! And and how long do you think that you would be able to to do that for without you know wanting to <laughs> without fall over? Out. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a minute. So Erasmus Darwin recommends um, that it should be three or four times a day for the for the duration of a month, and each time should be an hour or two. Ah, <gasps> an hour or two. So you could be spending six hours they... being spun in a chair. And do you know if they would take the patients out of the chair straight away to give them that kind no of idea. dizzy sensation when they were? No old, idea. No idea. And it was it was there, kind of seen left them there that, all day. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess so. It, it, it sort of it was seen that it was a really good way of um, kind of taking the pressure off the brain and the nervous system, and and that also that it would induce um, restful sleep, which frankly I think it's more likely to make you pass out. Um, there was another one which was cold water therapy. Gosh, yeah, I mean they all, that's it. They probably all, you know, fell into um, unconsciousness, and they thought, oh, good, you know, it's worked. They're uh, they're asleep. Lovely. Yeah. Probably just knocked them out. Yeah. So cold water therapy. Now, this is something that obviously people do, athletes and things do for muscles that need, um, you know, well, um, regeneration and stuff like that. And and if you've worked out a lot, Mm -hmm. an ice bath would happen. Um, And you'd be in there for like a minute or two and that's it. But here in Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem Hospital, um, you patients could be put in this cold water for hours at a time. Uh, and they'd be wrapped in towels that have been soaked in ice and they'd be sprayed with cold water. And that, again, is supposed to be a therapy. And then there is also bleeding and purging. So, I mean, we see this a lot with medicine. You get leeches and, and stuff like that to, again, to, to, to leech out these these bad humours in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is here, this is even more so. So you, you get um, bleeding, you know, bloodletting and things like that. But there's also, they enforce vomiting and diarrhea and stuff like that as well so this is yeah it's just it's really quite miserable um to yeah to be in there and you can imagine that on top of somebody who is depressed or psychotic or whatever it might be it would just not be fun at all well as well you know after they're having this treatment like let's say they're having this you know this this bath for god knows how long and they're freezing cold it's not like they're going to be taken to a lovely room after and they're going to be wrapped up and they've got a lovely bed it sounds like you know the whole place was just was just one big awful treatment yeah it was and you know there's no heating there either there's no mm. um hot water there's no kind of glazed windows it's, it's cold yeah i mean i think by by going into Be- uh, bedlam you it you're probably more likely to die than you are to be cured i think mm. realistically and you know mm. death was something that would happen and uh, and i they would just see it as oh well you know that that was the sort of the natural outcome of these things rather than oh we've brought it on by chucking them in a bath full of ice for hours on end 
Mm. So we get to the sort of mid 1700s, 1750, and there's a group of reformers who, um, you know, they, they've been people can go they can see what the conditions are like there and these medical reformers decide that they're going to do a progressive alternative and there's a hospital called St Luke's Hospital is built directly opposite um, Bethlehem Hospital and there's a chap called William Batty who is the the chief um, doctor there and he actually comes out and says all of these things that you're doing bleeding blisters cold baths vomiting all of this um, he comes out and he, he publicly denounces it and said says that the way that we are treating is to remove anything from the patients that are that are known to cause this their disorder whatever the problem might be mm. so they don't allow visitors they don't allow um or they don't do punish you know this kind of punishment of treating they they deal with um the patients with quiet and calm and of course, which we know now is the, is the sort of thing that people need when they're they're dealing with mental health stresses. Um, and the the guy who's in charge of Bethlehem Hospital, a guy called John Monroe, um, massively disagrees with this, and he comes out and says, "No, I've never heard of any bad effects from any of these things." And blah blah blah. And they both publish books, and they they battle quite publicly actually. Um, and yeah, it's it's a really kind of testing time, and. The patients at St Luke's are are dealt with it by individual diagnosis. Um, they uh, William Batty believes that mental illness uh, there's not just one form. There's a whole variety of different things, and he wants a clean, calm environment. So that's what he he sets out to do. And and you know in that wow. that as well as the belief is the vast difference between these two hospitals. Which is really quite and having them opposite each other. Yeah. As a patient, you're going, you know, I want to go over to St. Luke's, please. But hang on a minute, <laughs> I'm being taken into Bethlehem. <laughs> I mean, wow, two polar yeah. opposites. Yeah. And so where we have William Batty creating this rather amazing hospital, um, Bethlehem starts to come under a little bit of scrutiny. And there are a few mm. asylums that are found elsewhere in the country, um, which starts this kind of reformist movement inside Parliament as well. And legislation is is uh, kind of up and coming. And the governors of Bethlehem, who are generally pretty kind of high-flying folks, so they're up in the upper echelons, they manage to, to use their influence, which is, yeah, pretty big influence, to get the hospital exempted from any kind of scrutiny from outside so all these other asylums around the country are starting to be looked into they're starting to be um you know the, the conditions that the patients are kept in but bethlehem manages to not have that and eventually there is an mp called edward wakefield who gets manages to get into bethlehem um into the wards and uh, the, the the staff have been trying to put this off for weeks and weeks and weeks and eventually he gets in in 1814 and immediately he can tell why because the building this is where they see this cold building it's dark it's dirty there's no hot water you've got these pretty you've got these cells that are inhabited by several people chained to the walls or chained to their beds and they're you know there's there's feces on the floor some of them are, are, are stark naked in fact there was there was one particular uh, woman called anna stone um who was um they're essentially shackled to the bed completely naked um covered in her own dirt i mean it was it was really awful and there were patients that were found to be kind of crippled with the cold and all this sort of thing um and one of the people 
that comes out of this report that he he um or that, that he discovers in this um is a chap called James Norris and James Norris is described by this committee that go as being a clear and lucid man um he's been chained by his neck uh to an iron bar in the wall and he's got extra restraints on his feet and waist and chest and all this sort of thing and Norris tells them that he has been there for a decade and that his muscles have atrophied because he's basically been shackled to the wall. A variety of different, you know, by your neck as well. You're not going to be able to, you know, to move at all if your neck is shackled. Um, and essentially his muscles have atrophied. And the staff there, they say, oh, Norris is dangerous and he's violent. But the MPs, they say, well, to us, he seems completely normal and perfectly sane. So it's a very big deal. And they call for a parliamentary inquiry into the hospital. Now, this is where stuff starts to kind of get a bit real for Bethlehem Hospital. The, there's this inquiry. The medical staff do not come off well at all. Um, they all kind of start blaming each other, saying, oh, so-and-so, their problem, that it's, the, it's all squalid and whatever. Um, and the doctor argues that there's nothing wrong with it. He says, no, 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 it's absolutely fine. Um, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with it at all mad and the the um surgeon who was apparently a drunk guy had had just died a couple of weeks before so he you know escapes all of this completely so the medical staff the parliament like the um the 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 surgeon at bethlehem yeah yeah he's he's you know he's he's died and got out of it basically So oh the medical staff are dismissed, but the governors um, stay in place and they immediately kind of hmm. pretty much reappoint the same people. And it, this really annoys um, the all the reformers, but, but crucially not the House of Lords, because again, they're sort of all linked in. So they, the House of Lords actually block attempts to bring Bethlehem under official regulation. So they've managed by their considerable influence to basically swerve any kind of scrutiny, regulation, anything that would be good for their patients, they've managed to swerve it. It's really quite appalling. Yeah, that is terrible. It really is. So, especially like the people like Wakefield, who was the first MP to go in there, he must yeah. have been just enraged. Yeah, that this absolutely. Was, you know, uh, this was able to continue. Yeah. He, he was and he kept calling for reform as well and in 1815 Bethlehem moves from the Moorfields one which is like I say collapsing completely um, to the one in Southwark which is the one that you said you knew a little bit about and mm. they've learned a few lessons so this is a new building and in fact if you go to the Imperial War Museum today that is the very building that was used for Bethlehem Hospital so it is the same building that's on that site. It's an amazing building and you can you can look at it and you go, oh yeah, that's structurally sound, which let's face it, is a massive step up for the hospital. Um, yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? When you're walking through the War Museum, it's, I mean, already the, the kind of things that you've got on display at the War Museum kind of sends shivers down your spine anyway. But just to think of all the people that are in that space. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Quite, quite weird. Yeah. So when they move, what's really good is that they bring in new staff members and they do create some of these reforms that um, that have been being called for. And a few years later, there is a report that, that says, you know, the, the, the patients are kind of clean and supplied with mm. everything they need, really. And, and it's suggested as well, because up until one thing I haven't mentioned, I could go on about um, 
at Bethlehem Hospital for hours. But one thing that it came under scrutiny for was um, mismanagement of funds as well. People were kind of creaming off money from the funds um, as well. So this then it says all oh, the hospitals now solvent and it's it's pretty well managed. But it, it's not the end of the problems. We have a few little, well, I say little, they're quite big, but they're sort of individual problems, really. Um, one of the biggest ones, um, like I say, I could talk about this for hours, but I'm not going to, because, you know, nobody needs that. Um, but they find a guy called <laughs> Edward Wright, who's the apothecary there. And they find him one night in the, in the female wing, female galleries, and he's drunk and his clothing is, you know, all over the place. And somebody they kind of looked into right and one of his colleagues reports that uh he's generally kind of smoking and he's taking opening and taking off the heads of the dead patients occasionally and it comes out oh yeah oh no no it's properly just horrific um it, it turns out that he has developed this kind of weird sort of obsession with dead bodies and he's created get this his own kind of frankenstein style laboratory in the basement of the hospital yeah gosh i mean i know you like to call me the goth guide but i think that is overstepping the mark if you pick him for your podcast pedestal this week emily then there's no hope jesus christ no it's um, (laughs) i'm not telling you (laughs) (laughs) he's obviously dismissed and there's a couple of other little bits and pieces that happen but eventually um the it 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 kind of doesn't because those things don't concern the treatment of the living patients only the dead ones um bethlehem is still exempted from legislation that is passed in three different years over the next 20 years it's huge and eventually and so it's kind of operating still under its own steam and kind of doing what it wants. Eventually, reformers get louder and louder and louder. And in 1853, their exemption is revoked. So at this point, outside inspection um, is is now something that, that has to be done. And after 600 years of basically operating on their own and doing whatever they jolly well want, suddenly they have scrutiny and they are under the, um, you know, the 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 legislation that every other asylum is under so there we go. and who was was it still the monroes during that time when um, um do you know what it was the when they re um so after when they uh sacked all the staff and then rehired them it was the next monroe down who was who was brought back in as the head um when they moved right. to southwark i'm not sure i don't know whether or not it was still the monroes but i i would suspect it might have been i didn't actually look into that bit but i suspect it may well have been or at least somebody God, tangentially linked to them yeah i can't believe That's... how long it it took I know, over 600 years for them to go actually you know, and i think probably it was because it was the it had the name it had it had this influence from all these governors and all these people who basically had friends in high places as simple as that you know mm. it's awful um a couple of people who were there uh one of them was the um sort of a, a porter guy who used to work for oliver cromwell uh, he was known as daniel and he when he was there which would have been the mid 1600s he was one of the most famous patients of his time uh we don't really quite know what was wrong with him but we do know that he was seven feet six inches tall so that may well sorry placed on the rack (laughs) well no amazingly not actually um one of the things that that he 
we don't know exactly why he was locked up there, but one of the things that was apportioned to him was that he was a, a supposed prophet. Um, so this might well have been enough to lock him up and say that actually, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing things, you're hearing things. But he predicted the Great Fire of London, interestingly. Oh, uh, so there we go. And another one that was um, a very famous uh, member of uh, the Impatience was a guy called Augustus Pugin. Do you know that name? Yes, so he did a lot of the tracery around Parliament. Yeah, he did. The House of Parliament. He did. He, um, yeah, he, he did all the kind of the twiddly bits, and it's said that that project sent him mad. Uh, so he ended up in the Southwark version of um, Bedlam as well. Wow. And believe it or not, Bedlam, or I should say, really, the Bethlehem Hospital still exists today. Um, it was moved in 1930. It moved out to Beckenham in Kent. Mm-hmm. And it is now a very well-established and very well-respected um, hospital for mental health. Well, I should bloody think so. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a museum that's linked to it. It's called the Bethlehem Museum of the Mind. And it was opened in 2015. Um, and it's it was in, within the hospital grounds, actually. And it was opened by Grayson Perry, uh, the artist oh, who, of you know. fabulous to see. Is it still there now? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's still there. It's, it's a, it's a oh, permanent, permanent museum now. And it's got it's a, got a collection of all sorts of archival stuff and historic objects and, and uh, all refers to the treatment and the history of, of kind of health camp for mental health um, throughout wow. many, many things. And not shying away at all from its its dark and evil past. No, because, I mean, you can't. It's so... You can't. Bethlehem yeah. is so out there to the point where yeah. we have the word Bedlam and that's where it comes from. So, no, um, wow. they are very... I wonder if there's still a little stigma attached to it. You know, if you are a patient, go in there at the back of your mind thinking, well, I've heard the stories. <laughs> I wonder how I'm going to be treated. I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I mean, it's clearly a very, very different place to what it once was. So, um, no, yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. But, but you know, it's it's quite interesting. There's a history behind these sort of things um, as well. Oh, it's such a huge history behind yeah, Bedlam. Like, who would have known? God. There we go. So that's Bethlehem. Bethlehem Hospital, wow. or Bedlam, as we know it. So Alex, that was that was really good. Full God, on, isn't it? There's... But uh, it is. It's it's. It is. Quite... It is so full on. Yeah. And like I said, there's, there's more that I could talk and about, but we could be here for hours, so I won't. But, um, you know, there, there's... Yeah, no, you've painted such, and... um, such a clear picture of it all. Um, yeah, just the the, uh, the idea of people going in to see them and try and make them react. And, oh, it's it just makes you feel really uncomfortable, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's an uncomfortable history. And I, I kind of like dealing with uncomfortable mm. history because I think it's the sort of stuff that needs telling. So there we go. Mm. It says so, a lot about yourself, how you personally react to it as well, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same way that I, I deal with the history of slavery and stuff like that, is that it is mm. history, it needs telling. And by telling these things, we gain a better understanding of a whole variety of other stuff and and how to look at things and and how uh, very rarely are things black and white. There is There's a lot of grayscale in in historical people places mm. events things like that and it's um so yeah i like the uncomfortable history absolutely <laughs> yes so me too me too podcast pedestal so podcast pedestal um there's a couple well, so much that jumps out as being a the crux of this story there's so many figures especially near the end mm. of mps like wakefield and people going in the reformers that are trying to change things um yeah. I think for me, the 
the rotational chair, the way you described that, Mm. just kind of sets a tone of what this place would have been like. So I'm tempted to go for the rotational chair. Yeah. Yeah, rotational therapy. Yeah, it's it's uh, rotational therapy. Okay. It's it's quite it's quite a good one for imagining the sort of level of of hideousness that that they would have gone through because we all know what it's like to be on one of those chairs and they're great fun for a couple of uh, a couple of spins and and five spins. minutes, but you know, twenty to thirty not times an and hour, then hours it? at a time. Yeah, yeah not not fun. Not fun at all. No. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go for rotational therapy. Rotational therapy. Good one. Fab. Well, I'm going to go for... um, I'm going to go for the diarist, Ned Ward, because I think his... That little quote that I read you is so Mm. evocative. And the rattling of chains, drumming of doors, ranting, hollering, all of that... You really, you know exactly what that sounds like. You can, you can just imagine it, and it is, it is a thing of nightmares, isn't it? Really, um, yeah. And I, again, diarists, I love them because they are the people. Rather than it being a, a fairly sort of staid history, you get these guys going, "Hey, I was there. This is what it was like. I saw it." And so, um, and he's not a diarist I'd come across before, so I might have to have a little rummage for him um, a bit more. But yeah, I th- I'm going to go Ned Ward because his, um, his account of it was so evocative and so kind of clearly uh yeah an eyewitness account so there we go Mm, just captured it really well yeah i think that's a really good one i think it's going to be a bit of a close call this week so those are your choices everybody (laughs) we've got ned ward and we've got the rotational therapy so don't forget to to come and vote um how can people be aware? I'm three behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they can vote on um, Instagram. So they'll see that we're we're going to put up the polls on my Instagram, Alex's Instagram, and the joint Instagram. But also, you can email us. You can message us. Um, yeah, anywhere you want. Send a carrier yep. pigeon. Just let us know your vote. Yep. Attach it to a bunch of flowers, which is then delivered by a hunky young chap yeah absolutely fine oh lovely with some cupcakes yeah if you want <laughs> yes. that, no problem i've got the if cupcakes like, sorted if you want to bury your vote in a cupcake and the challenge <laughs> is to you know find it then i'm i'm all in for that like one of those hideous gender reveal things but except it's a it's a vote reveal <laughs> it's a vote reveal yeah because even if i lose i've got a cupcake so yeah, well exactly win-win <laughs> win-win fantastic well, there we go. The Wheel of Destiny. So it's time to figure out what we're going to be doing next week. What do we have uh, for the Wheel of Destiny? Have you got the, the wheel ready? Got the wheel ready. And I think I want to talk about um, a woman. Um, I oh, know woman. I spoke about Virginia um, the other day and it made me think I really have not spoke uh, spoken about, about women at all, really, on our podcast. So I'm thinking I might choose another lady if you're up right. for that. Yep, sounds good. Um, so I'm just going to let the wheel do its thing and then just see see what happens. Who we can uh, pick for that. All right, let's go for it then. Okay. Right, off we go. Oh. oh, it has landed in Bankside. Now, have we had Ooh. Bankside? Um, I don't know that we have, actually. Ooh, no, I don't okay. think so. That's good because that's a really juicy area with plenty of stuff. 
gosh, that is juicy, isn't it? Because you've yeah. got you've got the Tate Modern Gallery, so I could pick out pick any. Well, I say any, any artist, a, a, a small minority of, art, of artists are women, but yes, yes you can not do that. A, yeah, not, not that many to choose from in there, but there are yeah, some amazing female artists that have shown work there. Um, you've also got the Globe. Yeah. And, oh, actually, I, oh, I might do an actor. Oh, yes, yeah. Ellen Terry, Dame oh. Ellen Terry. Yes. She was a very well-known Shakespearean actor, 20th century. Um, and you're being a bit tangential because she obviously never performed at the Globe itself, but let's go with it, I don't care. No, not at the Globe that you can see there now, but in terms of a place where Shakespeare would have roamed and... Yes, let's do it. Ellen Terry, yeah. genius. Okay, yeah. brilliant. Ellen Terry. Fantastic. Oh, brilliant. And so that's nice because we're, we're upping the, uh, uh, the, the sort of the, the melancholy quota because it's been a bit dark the last few weeks. We're going to bring it back. Bring it back. Of, bit bring of showbiz. A little bit of showbiz, a little bit of shaky. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Great. Amazing. Well, that's it then. That's it for this week. And we have it planned for next week. Ellen Terry. I can't wait. Good. Well, thank you so much for this week, Alex. And remember to vote, everybody. And thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. Yes. And we will see you next week uh, on more Ladies Who London podcast with Ellen Terry. Have a great week, everyone. Can't wait. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.